so one of the things I love about the newsletter is that people respond, but they don't always respond going, oh, wow, I, 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 you know, I, I, I worship the ground that you walk on. You know, what a brilliant newsletter. Uh, sometimes people email back going, you know, either this is wrong or, you know, why have you written about this or this is disgraceful or, you know, you're biased or except, you know, the, the, you get the kind of full gamut of, um, of responses. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. Today, I have uh, a fantastic opportunity to ask so many questions to Stephen Bush, that is our columnist and associate editor uh, at the Financial Times. How are you, Stephen? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Stephen, um, you are very well known for your daily newsletter, Inside Politics. But today, as we start every time with uh, our talent show, we want to know more about um, your career path your journey. So, Stephen, how everything started? How did uh, uh, your love for journalism and politics start? So, in some ways, they, they, my interest in both those things has always been quite strongly linked in that I, you know, grew up in the type of household where, you know, we always had the radio on and, um, you know, and, you know, we always had all of the papers in our house and there was a lot of, um, you know, I mean, I think one of the reasons why Often when I file copy, there are perhaps one too many commas. It very much was the kind of household where if you did, if you paused for breath at any point, someone else would go, ah, well, I'm going to talk now. Um, I first started to take my own interest in politics uh, in the run-up to the Iraq war, which, uh, I mean, like most teenagers at that time, I thought it was a, a, a dreadful mistake and went on a lot of marches and first started to get interested in uh, politics in that way. At the same time that, Academically, as I was starting to work out what I wanted to study, I was becoming more interested in history and the kind of, um, and also ultimately I'm actually quite nosy, right? And then the, the appeal of journalism, I, I realised at the time, was that it's actually really one of the few careers in which um, being nosy is considered a character strength as opposed to a, a flaw. Um, and uh, and I've, I've always enjoyed uh writing and so as i you know and then as i was in university i joined the student paper doing the sports section and really just started to um fall in love with that at about the same time i was realizing that i personally didn't have the right sort of set of personal qualities to particularly enjoy being in politics mm -hmm. um and so then after i left university i was you know blogging doing a little bit of freelance work uh, and was hired to be the assistant to Ben Brogan on his morning politics newsletter. Um, and that's, you know, basically how I've, yeah, where why I've been in political journalism ever since. But for me, I think it's still that, that interesting, you know, like why stuff happens, you know, you know, why it matters, what its consequences are, finding out what makes politicians tick, um, that continue and that sort of 
love of finding stuff out and of history, I think, continues to be the thing that excites me most about political journalism. Uh, when you were thinking about starting uh, your career uh, in in these uh, fields, um, how did you see the kind of like um, being able to give uh, uh, audiences data and information, and of course not mi- mixing this with your personal opinion? How did you at the beginning try to balance this? Um, well, at the beginning, I was primarily writing um well at the beginning a lot of the freelance work i was doing was in that kind of like sort of quite dreadful freelance beat then you often end up when you're doing for yeah the kind of like current event has happened why i as an ex think yeah just kind of very sort of wrote stuff which is very data free and i wouldn't actually recommend to to anyone as an enjoyable way to spend time either reading or writing it but but my first full-time job as ben's assistant at the telegraph Um, obviously I wasn't writing as myself. My job was to fact check what he had written to, you know, to help out with the smalls, to construct the email. And I think the thing which was a really useful discipline is although that newsletter was, you know, rather like mine, right, it's an opinion, you know, it's okay, it has all of the key FT political stories in it, but it also has my analysis about where I think power is flowing, why I think politicians, you know, what I know about why politicians done something, what what I think readers should look out for in the coming days, weeks and months. And the thing which was a really useful discipline about starting at The Telegraph is that, you know, as someone who had started out on the political left, it was really useful to me to have the kind of discipline of going, okay, right, so um, the perspective of my boss who's on the centre-right and our readers who range from the kind of centre to the centre-right all the way out to the right, you know, what's, what is the, you know, what is the way that I express this idea that fits with what he thinks, fits with our analysis and doesn't upset the people who this arrives in their inbox? And so it was a very useful discipline to separate because I I sort of think there are kind of there are two tracks when you're writing opinion there's the sort of what I think of as the pure opinion you know I think this because x and then there's the analysis beat which is more of the kind of you know whether it's like Biden or Macron or or Rishi Sunak like right they've done this thing they've done this thing because they have the following objectives will it work here's why I think it will or why I think it won't um which in some ways is a much more programmatic thing where you're quite deliberately showing the readers you're working because the value add for the newsletter, both when I was the assistant on it at the Telegraph and for me now and when I run it uh, on Inside Politics, is um, what I want is for someone who doesn't necessarily agree with my conclusion as to why something's happened to be able to still better understand what politicians are doing. So that for me is how I've get into that method is like thinking about okay how can I better sharpen their understanding you are uh, running daily the inside politics newsletter I'm very curious about your day how does it look like how uh, can you make sure that every single day something like a newsletter that is a bit in, more intimate but just a column is uh, is ready for your readers yeah so um, ironically despite the fact that I have been now working on morning newsletters for more than 10 years I'm really not a morning person so I I actually start writing so I actually write it in the small hours of the morning my preferred time to write actually is that sort of bit starting after about 11 o'clock but you know that moment um, when maybe it's one o'clock and the temperature drops a bit 
And even in a yeah, even in the heart of a global city, it gets a little yeah, that, that kind of slight. You can hear the neighbourhood winding down a bit. That's when I like to do a lot of my writing and thinking. So I every, every day I you know I get home or you know I well I finished cooking or whatever at, at eleven to at eleven o'clock, and I will have been sending you know texts, WhatsApps, maybe calling people about what I'm going to write that that day, and then I will sit down and actually write it from eleven to about. 2am depending on how it goes um then georgina who uh, edits it and uh, you know writes and puts it together with me will wake up at some god awful time in the morning uh and she um you know fixes all the typos you know edits it puts it together and then uh will essentially wake me up to go here are my queries um at which we do about you know 8 8 30 9 o'clock you think goes through the proof and then it hopefully arrives seamlessly in people's inboxes at 9.30. So for me in some ways, I feel like my working day kind of starts at about 4pm because that's sort of the point where I have a sense of what the shape of the day has been, a sense of what the shape of the next day will be. And I start to think then, okay, what is it in terms of, um, you know, um, terms of the audience and I always think and I think you're exactly right to say I think you know whether you're in consultancy or you're doing legal advice or anything I think it's always really useful to have an idea of your imagined audience right um particularly with a newsletter where it's so personal um so I always then start thinking about um and often I actually think about it in terms of the people who email me very regularly so you know there's a head of M&A who sends you know great restaurant and music recommendations to me and I think oh well what would he be interested in and there's you know um yeah a uh, very high-powered academic who she emails me about you know music and public policy and I think oh well what's she going to be asking about and I sort of have this sense of okay right so what am I doing that is interesting for them what am I going to write about um you know tomorrow slash tonight and then I think okay right so who do I need to call who do I need to talk to who might I try and go for a drink with in that time between 4 30 and 11 o'clock when I start you know um start typing and so that for me is my working day for the newsletter is that 4 4 to 2 p.m um sorry 4 4 p.m to 2 a.m kind of slot and then in the morning you know partly because you know Georgina is uh, is very very good at her job I am um, I kind of then sort of just wake up and know that she will have, you know, fixed all of my mistakes and it will be a very seamless introduction to the morning when I groggily surface at kind of 8, 8.30. How do you keep up with the diversity of geographies as well? What is your, like, kind of um, news digest that you use for your own self to be ready for uh, delivering your newsletter? The FT app is the app I spend more time on than anything else on my phone. And yeah, and the FT from is is my you know was one of the reasons why I was very excited to join the FT is the FT has been the newspaper that I think of as my yeah it's the one I take on holiday right the it's the you know the one I the one I read for pleasure as well as for information partly because I I do feel that I have a very keen sense of what's going on as a result of reading it and then there are other mostly longer form uh, publications than I think give me a sense of like the kind of horizon stuff so africa confidential uh, uh brilliant uh sort of is it quarterly it's a brilliant magazine um then actually for something completely different i really like to read vanity fair again in terms of that importance of understanding its audience it has a really clear sense of 
you know, who it's pitched for, who it's reading for, and that's what makes it such a great and satisfying thing to sit down and read. And then the other thing which doesn't actually help me keep in touch with anything, but I find it a very enjoyable read, are the advice columns in Slate. So, um, yeah, so between between those, I, I feel I'm across. Do you think young people are still interested in politics in the way we saw in the past century or evolved thanks because of technologies and digitalization. I don't think the level of interest people have in politics has really changed. Um, and it kind of follows the same historical pattern we see, right? And then, so my sort of generational cohort, you know, grew up in that time of, you know, you know, low inflation, constant economic growth, you know, everything sort of seemed, you know, like it was going brilliantly. And then suddenly you have 9-11, the war on terror, the various kind of authoritarian measures um, that come in as a result of that, the war in Iraq, which did make a lot of people in my cohort suddenly sit up and go, oh, politics is the thing I need to be engaged in. And then people who are a little bit younger, I mean, although obviously I did graduate into the financial crisis, I think people who are that little bit younger who have been young enough not to maybe notice the Iraq war and the war on terror, suddenly, um, you know, the banks are failing, you know, people are losing their jobs and people suddenly go, oh my God, well, politics is something I need to take an interest in. And unless you are born in a very fortunate time, mostly I think at some point in your teenage years or your early 20s, something happens. And obviously I think for loads of people that was the COVID lockdown, right? Something happens to make you realise how much politics touches your own lives or touches the consequences of people you care about. I think the the fascinating difference now is... um. You know, when I was um, starting to read about news on one, when I was starting to read the news off my own bat, I was picking up a print newspaper. Um, when I was, I mean, I, I still vividly remember when I was about um, 14, uh, my mum getting broadband at home, which meant that I could just use the internet whenever I wanted um without having the kind of like stop using the internet i'm waiting for a phone call and so the politicization of my generation was kind of continually slowed down you know although we had you know i had a laptop we had but only we only had one computer which went on to the internet which was true of basically almost everyone loads of people who didn't actually have computers at home at all now of course once you get politically engaged you're immediately pulled into this ultra fast 24 hour world where you know there are things on tiktok there are things on instagram there are things on snapchat which i still continue not to really understand as an app but um yeah they and so it's much faster i think the interesting challenge for us in the media is that often yeah the weird thing is that the longer you do a particular beat in journalism the better you get at understanding it but sometimes as a result you get worse at explaining it to someone who's who's just joining and is just getting interested and i think sometimes the level of knowledge that that is assumed when someone starts to take an interest, well, it can be quite forbidding now because there's just so much stuff going on. Did you have any uh, sort of backlash sometimes because of your opinion or your conclusions? Um, and do you see the same happening uh, in uh, uh, not just political journalism, but business journalism, etc.? Yeah, I mean, uh, so one of the things I love about the newsletter is that people respond. But They don't always respond going, oh, wow, I, I, I you know, I, I, I worship the ground that you walk on. You know, what a brilliant newsletter. Uh, sometimes people email back going, 
you know, either this is wrong or, you know, why have you written about this or this is disgraceful or, you know, you're biased or except, you know, the, the, you get the kind of full gamut of, um, of responses. I mean, you know, um, the, the one which felt the biggest at the time was um, when Jeremy Corbyn was running to be Labour leader and I was one of the first people to say, yeah, look, he's going to win. I mean, the full kind of, you know, the kind of the level of sort of, anger from the the then Labour Party establishment and, you know, indeed actually the level of anger from Jeremy Corbyn's campaign was also um, something to behold. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even last week, someone emailed uh, very angrily that I had written about Boris Johnson and I was giving him too much ox the oxygen of, of publicity. I think, um, now, look, I've only ever worked in political journalism and now I'm in proper opinion journalism as well in my column. So... I don't know what it's like across the whole sort of the whole range of journalism. But I think then um, the thing that we are all and I think some places are better adjusting to this to others. But the thing we're all still adjusting to is that um, even at the start of my career, we had a lot of theories about what the readers liked, but we didn't know for sure. Now we have a huge amount of data about what the readers like. Um, we have a huge amount of um anecdotal evidence because they get in touch with us about that too and that is a new challenge because you know you obviously want to be led by what people are interested in and to inform our our audience but you also don't want to get stuck in that loop of going oh well I'm just going to give you the version of events that might not be true but is comforting to you and is not going to cause people to send me angry emails and you've got to balance those two things. Stephen, what has been the most exciting stories that you worked on? So in no particular order, uh, the, you know, I mean, the trust, the Liz Trust premiership was, um, I mean, I, I'll probably be less excited about it uh, in a couple of months when my fixed rate comes up for renewal and the full weight of what happened to interest rates hits me in the face but yeah I mean this kind of this yeah this kind of huge economic story therefore of course a huge political story happening just through one of those weird sort of miracles of timing exactly during conservative party conference so you know we were all up in um it was yeah it was Birmingham this year all up in Birmingham you know talking to Tory MPs some of whom were going well this is brilliant we just need to face face down the woke markets Many more Conservative MPs are going, this is a disaster, the party's going to die. And that real sense of, 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 you know, kind of, you know, no one quite knowing what was going to happen next, of a really fast-moving situation, uh, was just, um, you know, the thing I always love about journalism is that feeling of, you know, things are happening. Um, then, you know, again, in no particular order, the first Labour leadership election in 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn... Uh, yeah, the Labour Party had never been led by someone from its far left before. No one really thought he could win when he got on the ballot. That um, astonishing story and the transformation it brought about in the Labour Party was um, was so interesting to cover. I mean, just because it was like, oh, wow, this hasn't happened before. Um, and I guess that's also the same thing of the trust thing. And in some ways, of course, the other thing which links them is they are examples of both parties' extremes getting their hands on the wheel of the car at last and it having quite explosive consequences. And I think it's all about disruptions and how you can analyse them. And also, I guess, I, I guess, you know, like the reactions that you got from the readers and the comments and uh, how interesting it must have been uh, the interaction with uh, the public. Yeah.
question time. We got here Hugo and Veer to ask some questions to Stephen. So Hugo, what about you? Uh, where are you coming from? I'm coming from LSE. I studied uh, international history and I just recently graduated a few weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. All right. So what's your question for Stephen and what makes you interested in politics? So uh, I also study history um, and I have very broad interest in politics and journalism. So my question specifically was, I noticed that you didn't do a journalist specific qualification. So I was wondering how you thought that that developed your journalism, your skill development in that field. And how do you think that was a good route to go down? Or do you think it's good to have the qualification? Yeah, I think so. Partly because I graduated during the financial crisis and I uh, actually this is yeah, kind of generally important lesson in terms of what not to do. Uh, I was very pessimistic about my ability to get into journalism. I was basically like, oh, you know, I, you know, I didn't commit to an art. I didn't commit to to anything in particular at university. You know, I did bit on the paper, bit in the yeah, you know, bit in the labour club, bit of like artsy stuff, bits of this, bits of that, um, which I now think was great because it's actually the only time that you can sort of do that kind of hopping about. Um, and so I didn't, I basically thought, well, I'm not going to get onto a master's course. I don't think anyone had ever really talked to me about NCTJ. Um, and then I was lucky enough that working with um, Ben Brogan was basically like, you know, the most sort of amazing kind of applied like theory of how he did did journalism. And I still gain a lot from that. Um, I, th I do think, um, yeah, yeah, obviously I think, Visibly, I would say I demonstrate and many, many other people show this too. You don't need to have a specific um, qualification in journalism. But uh, I think what you do need is, uh, and actually it's helpful to have this even if you do have a formal qualification, but I was very lucky to have a very effective informal mentor who taught me an awful lot about the ropes of journalism. And that, of course, has shaped how I do journalism because when I get stuck on something, I do often sit down and think, OK, well, what would Ben say about this? Or I think, what would the... You know, and so, you know, I always feel that I carry a bit of the telegraph with me wherever I go because that's where I got my, my sort of initial introduction to how to do journalism. And so I think then the value of the... One, the value of doing it, yeah, whether it's, a you know evening course of the NCJ or if it's a full master's is that you you carry that wherever you go and you also do make um friends who you know well some of them will you know probably like do other things but you'll have friends who will be in journalism so yeah I mean I think um it is it is valuable I don't think you need well yeah you don't need to do it but it does sh does shape how you think about things thank you Veer uh did you study at LSE as well yeah, so I've recently, recently just graduated from the LSE with a bachelor's in economics. Um, and while I was there, I co-founded LSE's Media and Journalism Society, and before that worked for a grassroots media literary charity. Um, but the question I had today was on trust in the media becoming more of a pressing issue with the rise of misinformation and the journalist coming under sort of increasing pressure. I wanted to ask you, Stephen, what three traits do you think tend to make a poor journalist in the modern media landscape? And perhaps how has this changed in recent years? I think that, so I'm afraid I'm going to work back the answers of this back from the uh, from what I think the good traits are. So the I would say that the things you absolutely have to have is intellectual curiosity, the ability to be self-reflective, you know, whether it's because you couldn't stand a story up or you've written an opinion piece and 
now someone's made a persuasive argument go out was nonsense, wasn't it? Or, you know, it just hasn't worked or the newsletter has been bad that day. You've got to have that ability to, without sort of going into this kind of, you know, curling up into this ball of self-recrimination, which I do sometimes do, without, you've got to be able to reflect well on what you do. And then the third thing is you've got to have a commitment to the craft of journalism. I don't mean that in you've got to want to write pretty sentences, but you have got to care about, you know, was this true? Was it right? Was it important? Um, and I think that the things which make a bad journalist, therefore, you know, look, loads of journalists are, loads of great journalists, both in the present and in the past, you know, Paul Foote is a great example of that, right, were um, incredibly part party political or were committed to campaigners. But in their journalism, they were committed to truth, accuracy, is this important, is this right? And I think then the qualities which make for a bad journalist are when they visibly, when their kind of their order of priorities is clearly, you know, is this a convenient truth, uh, first and foremost? And that corrodes trust in the whole industry, right? You know, it, it's a bit like if the water's not safe in one part of the country, well, no one's going to be drinking tap water anywhere in that country for some time. Um, and then the other then flaws are, you know, not being reflective on whether when you've made a mistake, because because in the age of the internet, people can see when we've made a mistake. If we ourselves can't front up about it and be honestly reflective about our individual mistakes, I think it's very hard for us to convince people that we are better than um, than mis and disinformation. Uh, and so, yeah, I think those... So I think the first thing, that's it's always been important to care about the truth, but but the ability to be reflective and self-critical, and I really do mean self-critical, you know, it's very easy for me to say, oh, well, the FT could have handled that better, or the New States could have handled that, or the tech, but actually to talk about my own mistakes... That, I think, is a really important part of how we build and maintain trust, which I don't think was a necessary part of the skill set, um, you know, even 10 years ago. You still have to be able to do that privately, but the ability to articulate in public, OK, we thought this, now we don't, is, uh, I think, a new and important skill in terms of maintaining trust with our readers. Super. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And of course, thank you so much, Stephen, for all your insights and, uh, you know, being so clear and as well making really us understand how do you draft your newsletter? How does it come to life? And also, how do you keep up with all the news? And uh, I think we can learn from some of your habits as well. And so thank you so much, guys, for joining us today. Thank you so much. And I can't wait for the next episode. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.